This podcast is the ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Rosemont, Georgia. For more information, visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Let me just reiterate what Philip was asking a few minutes ago. I, I think about my own kids, and I think about the world that they'll live in in 20 and 30 years. And I think about the, the, the persecution Christianity is already facing across this country and across our world. And, you know, it's the parents' responsibility to disciple their children, but the church needs to partner with those parents. So you pray about how God would call you in that area. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful for the opportunity to study your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've given us the freedom to come together and to read and to listen and to understand, Father. And then I pray for our time together right now, Lord. I pray that you would help us to focus on your word, to see the text very clearly, to see exactly what you're trying to teach us and command us. And then, Lord, I pray that we would take what we've learned, leave with it here, Father, apply it to our lives, and be transformed more into the image of your Son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Had the opportunity this week to be in Atlanta for the first part of the week for the Send North America Conference. The Send North America Conference is the Southern Baptist Convention's kind of the North American Mission Board's uh, attempt at training pastors and, and helping us better understand how we can reach the world for Christ right here in North America. Had the opportunity to hear some great speakers. David Platt, maybe you've heard of him if you've read his book Radical. He was there. Uh, maybe you've heard of Johnny Hunt. He was the president of the convention a few years back. He was at First Baptist Woodstock, his church. Louis Giglio uh, spoke there, did a fantastic job. Matt Redman led some of the music. Kevin Ezell, was, uh, who's the president of the North American Mission Board, got to speak as well. But it was really cool to me to sit there and hear these guys preach and to kind of get to know some of the people that are, that are planting churches all around our country to see exactly how God is working and to see some of the amazing things that God is doing, and and I I heard one speaker say, I wrote this down, he said, you know God is at work when the wind of the Holy Spirit is already moving your boat, and you haven't even started rowing yet. (laughs) I thought, man, that's us. I mean, God's just moving our hearts, and he's stirring our minds, and he's, he's moving us in directions that maybe some of us haven't considered before, and we're not even really rowing yet. And I'm so excited about what God's doing. I'm so excited about what the future holds. And so with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the scriptures this morning. I want you to open to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. This is week 7 of our Generation 1-8 sermon series. Now for the last several weeks, we've been studying the Apostle Paul. We've been looking at his first missionary journey and studying exactly where he went and all the things that he's been able to accomplish. And this week in our study, Paul's first missionary journey will come to an end. Now, Paul's done some incredible things. He's he's gone to some areas that have never heard of the gospel. He's preached the good news of Jesus Christ. People have been saved. Signs and wonders have been done. But in our study this morning, their journey is over. Now, I want to show you something on the map that's very interesting. It's going to help us kind of understand and put into context what we're going to study this morning. I think we've got the map of Paul's missionary journeys up. Now, we've been studying for the last several weeks. He leaves from Antioch. He goes to Cyprus, into the Mediterranean. Perga, on into mainland Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey. Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Now, watch. There's a blue line that's going to indicate where he's going to go next. Now, watch what Paul's going to do here. Now, if we were to continue to trace that, he'd go south to the Mediterranean and eventually he'd sail back to Antioch. So here's what we see. We see the Apostle Paul, who's finished his missionary journey now. He's traveled probably 1,500 miles. It's taken him about a year. He's reached a point now where he's done according to all that God has called him to do. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. Look at the end there at Derby. You see where he ended up right before he started going back? 
I want you to look just to the east. There's Antioch. That's where he started. You see that? Now look how close he is when he finishes up in Derby to Antioch. Not to mention the fact that between Derby and Antioch is the city of Tarsus. You may see it on the map there. That's where Paul's from, right? You may know that about the Apostle Paul. So Paul, when he finishes his journey there in Derby, is very close to his hometown. He's very close to Antioch if he would just continue to head east. But instead of heading east, Paul and Barnabas decide to retrace their steps. That's very important for us to understand as we delve into this passage of Scripture this morning because we begin to ask ourselves the question, why would he do that? Why would Paul retrace his steps? Why not just go home? Well, I think as we examine this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, we're going to see the very clear answer of exactly why Paul didn't just go back home. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Let's read that together. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. They, that's Paul and Barnabas, preached the good news in that city. Now, that's Derby. We just saw the map there. That's kind of the end of the trip for them. They preached the good news there in Derby, and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned. Now, if you're taking notes, you need to underline that word returned. That's very important understanding what we're talking about this morning. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. And from Atelia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together, and they reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, we see something in this text that's very interesting We see a strategy and an intentionality of Paul and Barnabas to not simply go home when they're done, but to go back through all the churches that they had started to strengthen these churches and to disciple these people so they can better know the Lord. Now, I think it's interesting as we study Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, as we take a look at what they've done and what they've accomplished and we try to understand their model And their structure and their intent to begin to take what they did and try to apply it to our church today. Now we've learned a lot of interesting things about Paul and Barnabas. We've learned about them preaching the word. We've learned about the signs and miracles that they've done. We've we've learned how they've been persecuted and, and beaten and run off from a lot of different places. But of all the sermons we've done, from a strategic standpoint, I think this is the most important. Because we see a model from Paul and Barnabas that's going to help us better understand how we as a church need to move forward reaching the world for Christ. And so there are three points of emphasis I want to make from this passage of Scripture this morning that's going to help us move forward to the ends of the earth. Here's point number one. It's kind of long, so bear with me, okay? Number one, we, this is Rosemont Baptist Church, need an intentional strategy to develop mission partnerships And support those partnerships throughout North America and the world by returning over and over again. Now let me read that one more time. We, that's our church, need an intentional strategy to develop mission partnerships and support those partnerships throughout North America and the world by returning over and over again. Now when we read about Paul and Barnabas, 
We see that when they were finished doing all the things that God had called them to do, they, the Bible says, returned. But here's the interesting thing about when they returned. They didn't return simply to take some pictures. They didn't return simply to fellowship. They didn't return just to see what was going on in those towns, although they certainly would have seen and wanted to meet the people and see what was going on. But they returned with intent. You understand that? That's important. They had a strategy. They had a plan. They understood it's not enough for us just to go one time and tell them about Jesus and never go again. They understood very clearly that if we're really going to make a difference in these churches, if these churches are going to grow and prosper, we need to develop a relationship with these churches. We need to go back to them. Now, this is something that Paul does all throughout his life. In fact, if you were to continue to read through Acts chapter 14, at the end of Acts chapter 14, and all the way through Acts chapter 15, Paul is going to go on a second missionary journey. And the way that Paul begins his second missionary journey is at the end of Acts chapter 15. And here's what Paul says. Sometime later, we don't know how much later, but Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they're doing. That's the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul says, we, we understand from a strategic point we understand this idea of intentionality. We understand that we can't just go once. We need to go over and over and over and over again. So, so Paul revisits these places. Not only does he revisit these places, but you're probably aware of the fact that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Now, in the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote them to churches to strengthen them. That was his whole reason for writing. We've got a map of Galatia. Pull that map up for me if you would, please, Kevin. Now, you see the little red line, that's Paul's missionary journey, but I want you to notice the blue, that's Galatia. Within Galatia, you see Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Those are the cities we've been talking about the last several weeks. This is where Paul has gone initially and planted churches. This is the area Paul's going to go back to to continue to build his relationship. But when Paul finishes his first missionary journey, guess what he's doing? He's going to write the book of Galatians. Now, the book of Galatians was written to the people of, you want to guess? Galatia. See that? So Paul says we're going to go and plant churches in Galatia. Then we're going to go back and strengthen those churches. Then we're going to write a letter to those churches to help them better understand how to do the things of Christ. Paul says we've got a plan here. You get that? We've got an intent. We've got a strategy. We are purposeful in what we're doing. It's not a one-time deal. We need to build partnerships with these people. And we need to strengthen those partnerships as we go back over and over and over again. It was interesting for me at this conference. You can take that down now, Kevin. Thank you. It was interesting for me at this conference how the North American Mission Board, as we sat there and listened to these guys speak and went to all these breakout sessions, they've got a real clear strategy for reaching people for Christ. In fact, if you kind of took a 30,000-foot view, you kind of took a look at the big picture, you would see very clearly that the Southern Baptist Convention has got a strategy for reaching the world. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the cooperative program, but every week... We take in tithes and offerings. A portion of those tithes and offerings we send to the Southern Baptist Convention through the cooperative program. Now, churches all over the country send money to the cooperative program. Last year, our church sent just over $76,000 to the cooperative program. Now, you can go right out this door, and there's a mission wall right here on the left. You should go look at it. It lays out exactly what we sent to the cooperative program and all the other money we spent on missions. We spent over $145,000 last year on missions alone from our church but of all the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that give to the cooperative program, last year the cooperative program raised about $186 million. 
Now, of that $186 million, 50% of it went to the International Mission Board. Okay, that's the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Group that sends missionaries into all parts of the world. There are are over 5,000 missionaries now serving through the International Mission Board. 50% of the money, $93 million, went to the International Mission Board. 23% of the money, or $42 million, went to the North American Mission Board. So of the cooperative program money, almost 75% of it goes either to international or North American missions. Now, they've got one clear strategy at the North American Mission Board. How are we going to reach more people for Christ on North America? Their plan is pretty simple. They want to plant churches. That's what they want to do. That is their model. And the more churches they plant, the more people they can reach. Now, here's what they say. Their goal over the next 10 years is to plant five, let me, let me say that again. Their goal over the next 10 years is to net 5,000 new churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay? So over the next 10 years, they want to have a net growth of 5,000 new churches. But here's the problem with that strategy. Every year, approximately 800 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention die. They close up shop. They sell their building. They can't afford to pay the light bill anymore. So if you take 800 churches a year for 10 years, that's 8,000 churches that will die over the next 10 years. In order to net a 5,000 church increase, they've got to actually plant 13,000 new churches in North America over the next 10 years. You understand the numbers. Now here's the problem with that strategy. That's an ambitious strategy. That's an ambitious plan. Here's the problem. 97% of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention have never planted a new church. 97%. So they've got this strategy to reach the world by planting these churches, and they've got all these churches that have never actually planted. And you say, well, why is that? Why are churches not planting? Well, here's the main reason. It's just not on their radar. It's not something they think about. We don't think oftentimes about planting new churches. Now, you start talking about planting churches, and, and, and people start getting a little uncomfortable. Wait a minute now. Are you talking about, Adam, me leaving this church and starting a new church. I'm not talking about that. Now, God may be talking to you about that, but I'm not. You say, I'm not sure that I'm called to go. Well, you may not have to go, but here's the way the model works oftentimes. We would find somebody who's already committed to planning a church, and they're they're all over. One of the nights we were there, they commissioned all these church planners to send them all over North America. There were people that were going to go to Las Vegas, British Columbia, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, there was one guy that was going to plant a church to the Hindu people in Houston, Texas. Isn't that amazing? So there are all kind of people that are saying, look, we're we're willing to go. We're willing to plant these churches. We just need an established church to say, we're going to partner with you and we're going to help you in order to plant that church. And you say, wait a minute, do we really need churches in North America, Adam? I mean, in True County alone, there's something like 50-plus Southern Baptist churches in True County. Over 50 Southern Baptist churches in True County. Well, here's the problem. In other parts of the country, it's not that case. In fact, there are parts of the country in America, in the United States of America, that are less evangelized than some third-world countries abroad. Had a conversation with a guy while I was at this conference. He's from San Diego. He's actually from New York. So he had the New York accent. He's a hip-hop dancer, seriously. Uh, he dances, and that's his ministry, man. And he's able to connect with these kids through hip-hop dance. So, you know, we, I can't dance, so I'm not even going to try. Yeah, yeah. He's good at it. I was like, brother, that's your deal. I can't do it. You keep. So we're talking about San Diego State. He's like, hey, 
He said, you're not going to believe this conversation I had last week with this girl. He said, this freshman group came in, right? And they're doing orientation. I'm talking to someone. He said, I talked to this girl who's from America. She had never heard the name Jesus. I know. I was like, are you? He said, I couldn't believe it. He said, I had to ask her two or three times. I thought she was kidding me. She had no idea who Jesus was. So there are places in our country that don't have enough churches. We need to catch the vision of being strategic as a church to partner with those kind of people, to develop those kind of relationships, to send those kind of people, to send funds, to send mission teams, to support and undergird and build that foundation of these people as they plant churches to reach Christ all across America. Because here's what happens. When you plant a new church, guess what happens? It reaches people for Jesus. And as that church grows and becomes more and more strengthened, guess what it does? It plants new churches. And over and over and over the process goes, it's exponential growth. We need to be thinking about planting churches in North America. We need to be thinking about planting churches abroad. You say, I'm not sure we can do that. Well, I'm not sure we can do it either. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. I mean, he can give us the ability. He's already assembling the resources. He's already changing our heart. He's already moving the boat. We're not even rowing yet, right? I mean, God's doing some incredible things. He may call us to plant churches in North America. He may call us to plant churches all over the world. I've been very interesting the last several months to, to read books on missions. And one of the books I read was called When Helping Hurts. You should read it if you're interested in mission work. Here's the premise of the book. When helping hurts helps explain this process of taking these mission trips to some part of the world. And believe it or not, if you're not careful, these churches that take these mission trips can actually harm the people that they're trying to help. You say, how's that possible? I mean, we're going and we're taking stuff and we're doing VBS and money and helping them build houses. How can we actually harm them? Well, let me tell you a little bit what this book explains. This book explains, as we all know, that in America we live uh, an extremely rich existence. Okay, 2.6 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day. We've talked about that already. Most Americans live, by average, on more than $90 a day. Now, you can do the math with your own paycheck. You take what you make in a year, divide it by 365, I bet you it's more than $90 a day. So we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a world and with standards that are so much greater than the rest of the world. And we have, in America... What some missiologists, people that study missions, call a God complex. <laughs> I'm going to read for you the definition of a God complex. A God complex is a subtle and unconscious sense of superiority in which we believe that we have achieved our wealth through our own efforts and that we have been anointed to decide what is best for low-income people whom we view as inferior to ourselves. Now you say, oh, I don't know if I believe that. But you know what? In our subconscious, we may think it, right? I mean, we look at people that live in shacks like this, and we think, well, you know, they must not be smart enough. I mean, they look at the house they're living in, right? Or they must not be strong enough. Or they must not be a very hard... Maybe they're lazy. They're just not a, they're just not a hard worker. And so we think, well, you know, we, we've just got so much because we've worked so hard, and we've done so many. We're so smart, and we, we fail to realize that everything we have is because God has given it to us. We need to kind of get our priorities in order. But here's what we do. We walk into one of these villages with the God complex. We're Americans. We're here, everybody. Yeah, right? We're rich, and we got all this money and all this power, and we can just kind of snap our fingers, and things will begin to change. Well, now, take a look at how these people live. If you ask the average American, how do you alleviate poverty? They say you give money. That's what we need. We need more possessions. 
These people need clothing and a house and shoes. And they need, the more money we can throw at the problem, the more it will increase and the more we can fix it. And money is important. And material things are important. But when you ask people that live in these circumstances to define poverty, they use words like shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness. See, it is about the money to them, but it's about more than feeling like they just can't help themselves. Like they've got no real hope. That they can't feed their own family. They're, they're helpless and they're weak and they can't do the things that they need to do. So here we come as Americans with the God complex. We're going to dump a bunch of money. We, we give them all this money and we pour all this money on them and, we, and we, we buy all these things for them and we look at the man who lives in that shack who can't even put food on the table for his family and it makes him feel even less inferior. You understand that? Wow, I can't even afford to buy food for my family. These people have built us a house. I mean, we're grateful for these things, but at the same time, it just it increases their level of shame. It increases their level of helplessness. And if we're not careful, these people become reliant on our money. And instead of helping themselves, they're looking for a handout more and more. Now listen, we're going to help these people. And there's a way you can help them without hurting. That's what the whole book is about. But we've got to be careful as we go. We can't just walk into this thing with a God complex that all we got to do is show up and everything's going to be fixed. That's not the case. Statistics show that in a lot of cases in these poor villages where people have gone and done certain types of mission work, even after a decade, there's no change. The people are the same as they were 10 years ago. They're still having the same problems and the same issues. The point is we need to have a partnership and a plan to continue to go back. But as we go back, we need to partner with these people in such a way that we don't harm them as we try to help See, Paul understood that. Paul understood we're going to have a strategy and an intent and a plan. And we're going to go back over and over. We're going to partner with them in such a way that we can build them up and strengthen them so they continue to reach people for Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Verse 21, we just read. They preached the good news in that city. They won a large number of disciples. Then they returned. We see that to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now verse 22, look at what they did. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. You got that up? Pull that back up for me, Kevin, if you would, real quick. Acts twenty two fourteen. they returned, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now, here's what Paul says. You need to underline this phrase if you're taking notes. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So we see we, we need an intentional strategy to build these relationships and continue to go back over and over. But number two, here's the second thing we need. We need an intentional strategy to strengthen and encourage our mission partnerships as well as develop leaders in existing churches. Let me read that again. We need an intentional strategy to strengthen and encourage our mission partnerships as well as develop leaders in existing churches. Now Paul says we're going to go back. We're not going to go back just to hang out. We're not going to go back just to fellowship. Those things are going to be fun. But we're going back with a purpose, with an intent. We're going to strengthen these disciples. You say, what, what kind of strength are we talking about? Are we talking about physical strength? Right? We're going to teach these people to be strong? No. These people are probably strong enough physically. I'll, I'll never forget driving through some of these villages and seeing these kids carrying on their back these huge loads these people, when they're ready to cook, they, have to, they, they literally build a fire on the floor of their house, right? You understand that. There's the dirt floor. They build a fire in their house, and they cook. That's their, that's their kitchen. In fact, we visited one of these villages. The lady took us in. She wanted to show us her kitchen. There it was. There's a pile of wood on the floor. That's where they cook. 
But in order to start these fires, they need little sticks. And so they take this little kindling, these small little sticks, and they bundle them up in these huge bundles, and they'll wrap a rope a bunch of times around it and tie it off. And they'll put these huge bundles on the backs of like five- and six-year-old kids. And so you drive through these villages, you see these kids carrying just these enormous piles of sticks back to their house. Why? So they can cook their food. See, Paul's talking about strengthening the disciples. We don't need to strengthen them physically, but we can strengthen them spiritually. You say, how do we do that? We can teach them and disciple them. We've got resources they don't have. We can offer them things, books and training and, and, and pamphlets and things that they don't have themselves that they never would be able to get their hands on. Think about the world you live in. If you decided today that you wanted to know more about the Trinity, you say, I want to read a little bit more about the Trinity and study the Trinity. So you could literally go home today, get on Amazon.com, Order as many books as you could read overnight, and then by Monday night, you can have that book in your hand. It's amazing the world we live in, isn't it? People in Guatemala and some of these third world countries that live in poverty don't have that access. And so as we go, we can train them and take resources and help them better understand who Christ is, help them better understand what discipleship is and how to lead their church and how to reach people for Christ. When I was in Guatemala several months ago, we... we, had some time to train pastors. And I've told you this story. Maybe you heard it before. But it amazed me at how these guys would drive 8 and 10 and 12 hours in terrible conditions, riding the bus, walking, any way they could get there to learn just a little bit about Christ. To learn just a little bit more about their faith so they could take that faith back into these very remote villages and minister to these people that I'll never have an opportunity to minister to. But as we train these pastors, they're able to go and they're able to take that training and use that training to continue to reach people for Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. We need to go back with intent to strengthen these disciples, to train these leaders, to help them find their place in service, whatever that may look like, so they can take what they've learned and continue to spread the gospel in all these villages all around the areas that they serve in. But look at what Paul does in verse 22. This is scary to me. Paul says, we need to go back strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And I look at the quote here. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul says we need to encourage these people. Why? Because there's hardships coming. We need to encourage these people because there is persecution on the way. That's easy for us in America to kind of be numb to that. It's easy for us in America to kind of look out across the landscape of the world and say, you know, there are other people in the world that are suffering, but it's not us. I want to tell you something. I think that day's coming. I think that day's coming. Now, right now, our persecution is ideological debate. That's pretty much what it is. Let's debate ideas. Let's boycott this or let's boycott that or let's support this or let's support that. Let, let's do these things. That's the level of persecution we face today. It's kind of just discussion, right? But there are people in other parts of the world right now that are dying for their faith. Now, Paul and Barnabas understood this. They understood the idea of great persecution. In fact, we read over and over in Scripture about how Paul was persecuted. He was shipwrecked or he was beaten or he was thrown in prison. All for his views, all because he preached Christ. But here's the amazing thing about persecution in Scripture. Time and time and time and time and time again, every time the church is persecuted in the New Testament, it leads to the gospel going forth and people getting saved. One of the primary examples is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is stoned. Remember, they take him out of the city streets, they hit him with rocks, and they kill him. Acts chapter 8, 
after Stephen is murdered, he's martyred, all the people of Jerusalem, all the followers of Jerusalem, the Bible says they scattered. They fled. They went to all parts of the world because they were scared to death. But here's what God did. God said, I'm going to use that death of Stephen. I'm going to use his stoning to disperse all these people. And when they go, you know what they're going to take with them? The gospel. And when they get to the town that they're running to, you know what they're going to do? They're going to share their faith. And God gave these believers the strength to continue to share and continue to lead people to Christ. Some of these believers actually started churches. It's fascinating to me. You remember the story of Paul. He's standing there. Remember when Stephen is stoned? The Bible says a young man named Saul was holding their coats. He looked approvingly upon the death of Stephen. You remember that? Stephen is martyred. The believers flee. A large group of them go to Antioch and they plant a church. Now follow me here. Antioch is the church that actually calls Paul to go into the world to share Christ. How amazing is that? God said, I'm going to use this terrible incident to get you guys to go to Antioch because you're scared to death. When you get there, I want you to form a church. And then irony of ironies, I want you to call the dude that held the coats of the guy that was being stoned. I want you to send him in the world to share Christ. That's what God does. He's at work all over this world. And every time persecution takes place, the gospel is spread. I've been interested lately in reading some about Africa. Africa is very interesting to me because of all that God's doing and how the Holy Spirit's moving and just incredible things are happening in Africa. But there's a lot of persecution taking place on the continent of Africa. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is the Muslim versus the Christian. We just see that a lot in what's going on. So we read things like this in Nigeria. 700 Christians have died this year. Now here's the quote. I'm going to quote it right out of the newspaper. Muslim extremists keep warning Christians either convert to Islam or die. Tanzania. Because of riots in the latter part of May of this year led to the burning of a lot of churches. We read the similar type stories in Somalia and Sudan and and all over Africa. And we we see all these people being murdered in this persecution of Christianity. And we think to ourselves, man, Christianity must be suffering in Africa, right? I mean, people must be scared to death. They're hiding. I bet Christianity's dying. What are we going to do? How are people going to hear about Christ? Well, see, it's just the opposite. Because of this persecution and through this persecution, Christianity is growing like crazy in Africa. In fact, it's growing so much that some people believe that in the next 50 years, it will be the center of Christianity in the world. Do you understand that? It will supplant the West as the center of Christianity. Here's a quote. This is a phenomenon that's developing, for the most part, outside the notice of much of the Western press. There's a shocker, right? <laughs> In what is called the Global South, which is Africa, Latin America, and Asia, Christianity is growing in staggering fashion, promising that in the next 50 years or so to eclipse the West as the spiritual home of faith. God said, I'm going to take that persecution that is just so terrible and wretched and horrible, and I'm going to use it for my glory. And through this persecution, Christianity is going to grow and grow and grow. And we're going to reach more and more people for Christ. I read about a story from an Islamic scholar. He's an, he, now listen to this. He's a Libyan sheik. Okay? His name is Ahmed al-Khatani. And he was interviewed on Al Jazeera. Now you know Al Jazeera, right? You know the network, the Arab network. This is not a Lifeway interview, okay? Got it? This is not out of the Christian index. Listen to what this guy says. He says, Islam used to represent Africa's main religion. 
But the number of Muslims in Africa has diminished to 316 million. Now, there's about a billion people in Africa, half of whom are Arabs in the north. So in the section of Africa that we're talking about, the non-Arab section, the number of Muslims does not exceed 150 million people. Now, here's the fascinating part. He says there are now... This is this Libyan sheik, right? This Islamic cleric, this scholar. There are now 1.5 million churches. Those are Christian churches whose congregations account for 46 million people. That's in Africa. He says every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert Christianity. That's amazing, those numbers. And you know how it's happening? It's happening in the middle of persecution. It's happening in the middle of conditions that most of us can never even imagine. And we wonder, how could God work there? (laughs) How could God work in those circumstances? Because he's a lot bigger than we are, that's how. And he does incredible things when we'll just allow him. You say, "How how can people that are enduring such suffering continue to follow God? Two reasons. Number one, God's grace is sufficient is the number reason. God's grace is sufficient when we're not. And number two, they endure the suffering because Christ is worth it. And they understand what he's going to accomplish. And they understand that there will be times when they're going to lose the battle, but ultimately they're going to win the war because Christianity has marched from day one onward and onward and onward, reaching more and more and more people for Christ. You know what the amazing part of this story is? You're a part of it. God's calling you to march with the faithful servants from the centuries past to continue to march forward to reach people for Jesus Christ. Paul says we need to go and strengthen these churches and develop these relationships and guide these leaders. Why? Because persecution is coming. Now verse 26, I need to finish up this morning. Acts chapter 14, verse 26. From Attilia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline that word completed. And here's the third point I want to make this morning. As we think about strategies and developing partnerships and going back and being intentional, here's the third thing I want you to understand this morning. We need an intentional strategy to complete the journey. We need an intentional strategy to complete the journey. It's easy to start fast, isn't it? But how many finish fast? It's easy to start strong, but how many finish fast? Strong. Paul and Barnabas had traveled almost 1,500 miles. It had taken them a year, but they completed everything that God had called them to do. You know, it's going to be a long, hard, difficult road. There will be times when you question that first calling, when God called you to do mission work, or God called you to give, or God called you to be a part of it. There will be times when you'll question that calling. There will be times when you'll want to give up. There will be times when you wonder if this is really what God has called you to do. Paul encourages us here that no matter what we go through, we need to have a strategy to complete the journey. We need to see this model of Paul and Barnabas in the church of Antioch as our model. I heard a quote this week that keeps rattling through my head. I think it's very powerful. It says, a church should not be measured by its seating capacity, but instead it should be measured by its sending capacity. That's cool, isn't it? You know, it really doesn't matter how many people sit in this auditorium. If none of them ever go out, we've missed the point. It doesn't matter how many times we can pack the pews. If none of them share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, we've missed our calling. So here's the question. How many are going to go? How many are going to send? 
Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to do incredible things to reach the nations for Christ? That's our challenge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to study your word, Lord. We just pray that we would take this, this intentionality of Paul and Barnabas, this understanding of going back, Father, and continuing to minister and continuing to disciple and strengthen the churches. Father, we pray we would see that as our calling and you would give us the ability and the discernment and the wisdom and the power, Father, to do all things you've called us to do. Lord, help us to reach the nations for you. And we're going to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity for the next couple of minutes. Maybe you want to pray about your calling to mission work. Maybe you want to join this church. Maybe you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whatever you want to do, this is your time right now. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.